Hello and welcome to another episode of Stardust MQ. I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is Associate Professor Daniel Zucker. He's an observational astronomer studying the Milky Way in the local stellar group. He has had an incredibly varied and fascinating career, and I recently had the privilege to talk to him about it. But before all that, I had to ask him how he started on the path to being an astronomer in the first place. You know, I could say something really, how should I say, picturesque or something, or really artistic, saying like, oh, I saw Halley's Comet um, when it came around in the 80s, which is true. Uh, and that's what inspired me. But, you know, I thought it was cool. I thought astronomy was cool, but I didn't necessarily consider it as a profession. I guess, well, starting from the very, very beginning, my dad's a physicist. Um, my eldest sister's a physicist. My brother's a physicist. The next oldest sister is um, a biologist. So, okay, she's black sheep of the family. Um, I came from a very heavy science background family. In high school, I went to a summer science program which focused on astronomy. So that really got me thinking about it and thinking about like, actually, this is pretty cool. I really like this. But then when I went to uni a year or so later, I was convinced for one reason or another that I should get a degree in physics because, you know, it's more practical than astronomy. In retrospect, I probably would have had more fun doing an astronomy degree. Then I thought, you know, I'm going to do something other than science because, you know, my family does science. I want to do something different. And so when I graduated, I thought I'm going to get a job doing something else. And, you know, at the time I was applying for jobs in business at the time, but I was having trouble getting a job because the U.S. Um, was in a recession. So there weren't a lot of jobs going around. And so I thought, well, you know, I did astronomy. I did, you know, some summer jobs as an astronomer when I was an undergrad. And maybe I should just try that. So I applied for um, jobs at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Within two weeks, I had two job offers. I got the more interesting sounding job to match the salary of the less interesting sounding job, which was higher. And I started doing that. And I did that for three years. So basically, I was working with data from the International Ultraviolet Explorer, which was an orbital telescope that did observations in the uh, ultraviolet. Um, while I was there as well, I had sort of opportunities to do independent research projects with some of the postdocs and faculty people there. Um, and I really liked it. And after three years of doing that, I thought, you know what? I'm going to go to grad school. So I went to grad school, got a PhD, got a PhD, and was applying for jobs, and got a fellowship to go to Germany. Um, after Germany, got a postdoctoral position in England, and then after that, ended up here. So what projects are you working on at the moment? My recent research work, I would say, focuses on two big surveys. One which has been going for quite a few years and one uh, which is relatively new, like a couple of years old. The one has been going for quite a few years. Actually, I joined on to pretty much right when I arrived in Australia uh, 11 years ago, and that is what is called the Galah survey. Galah, well, you know what a Galah is, but Galah standing for Galactic Archaeology with Hermes. Hermes is a particular spectrograph, a high-resolution optical spectrograph that we use on the Anglo-Australian Telescope, Siding Spring Observatory in Coonabarabran. And that project, the Galah survey, 
is to get spectra of a million stars in our galaxy and figure out what they're made of, look at their elemental compositions, which you can get from high resolution optical spectra. And with that, try to disentangle essentially kind of the formation and evolution of our galaxy. So looking at how our galaxy has, well, formed and evolved over time by looking at the compositions of the stars in it. And by looking at what they're made of, looking at their compositions, we can tell something about where they formed, the conditions they formed in, how old they are, and try to figure out how our galaxy got to be what we see today. Um, one of the reasons that this works is that for the most part, for most elements, a star for most of its lifetime has the same relative abundances of different elements. It's almost like a kind of stellar DNA. And if you look at a star and look at the relative amounts of different elements in it, then that's almost certainly the same relative amounts as it was born with. So it tells you something about the material it formed out of. So essentially what you can do is you can trace how, something about where they formed, the conditions they formed in, what they formed out of, um, and figure out ages and put this all together to try to get a picture of how our galaxy got to the way it is today this lovely spiral of stars. How successful has the Galar survey been? Pretty successful. Uh, we're not at a million stars yet. We're only at about 660,000. So we're more than halfway there. But it's been, you know, it's been going on for quite a few years. You mentioned you had two surveys uh, you're working on. What was the second? Another project I'm part of, one which is more recent, we started in 2018, is called S5, and that is the Southern Stellar Stream Spectroscopic Survey. What that means, so Southern Stellar, well, Southern is kind of obvious. Stellar stream is streams of stars that are formed when small galaxies and dwarf galaxies or star clusters are essentially ripped apart by the tides of our galaxy. And then spectroscopic survey, well, we're getting spectra of the stars in it. Um, and we're doing that also with the four meter Anglo-Australian telescope in Siding Spring. And what we're doing is we're surveying all of these stellar streams that we see around the Milky Way. These stellar streams, again, they form when dwarf galaxies or star clusters essentially get a bit too close to the Milky Way. The Milky Way's tidal forces start pulling them apart. Because they're not solid, the stars start drifting apart and it's almost like some sort of stretchy candy and the stars start coming out in streams, both ahead of and behind the star cluster or dwarf galaxy, and you can see them actually on the sky. And this is something that we've really started seeing lots of in recent years because we're doing a lot of large-scale imaging surveys of the night sky. And until we had that kind of, those large amounts of imaging data, especially digital imaging data, so you can process it with computers and look for, um, look for structures like stellar streams. Um, it, it would have been very difficult, if not impossible to do, but now these stellar streams are kind of coming out of the woodwork. So, you know, you might look up at the night sky and think, oh, there's nothing there, but if you apply some interesting filters to the data, you see streams popping out all over the place. And again, they're wrapped around the sky. And eventually, over time, these stellar streams are going to merge in with our galaxy. But at least at the moment, we can still see distinct streams. 
What exactly do these dreams tell us? Uh, so there are a few things they tell us. One is by setting the stars in the streams, we can learn something about the kind of object that they came from. So by both looking at their velocities and also their compositions, we can tell something about the kind of object that they came from, whether it's a star cluster or a dwarf galaxy. By looking at a group of these streams, uh, we can say something about what kind of objects are getting eaten up, if you will, by the Milky Way. So, you know, how many clusters, what kind of clusters, how many galaxies, what kind of galaxies. And then on sort of going out to even the bigger scale, almost the cosmological scale, um, by studying the orbits of these streams, we can kind of disentangle what the mass distribution in the Milky Way is. So essentially these, these streams as they're orbiting the Milky Way are kind of revealing how mass is distributed in the Milky Way. And you think, well, surely we know that. And actually we don't really know that that well. And most of the mass in the Milky Way we believe is in the form of dark matter, which we cannot directly observe. So this is kind of like the best way to try to find the distribution of dark matter. And you know, one of the ideas is with studying streams is that if a stream were to encounter a clump of dark matter, you might expect to see some traces of that. Some people have claimed to see this. Um, so this is another thing that you know, possibly we might be able to indirectly detect clumps of dark matter by their influence on streams. And that tells us about the distribution of dark matter, which goes on to kind of cosmological implications because we don't know what dark matter is. And the vast majority of the matter in the universe we believe is dark matter, but we don't know what it is. And we only have kind of loose constraints on how it behaves. So I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but at least among my cohort, uh, you are considered something of a living legend because you have over 16,000 citations to your name. Can you just explain to me exactly how that happens? So I would say at least about half of them are because I was part of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. And the Sloan Digital Sky Survey has, well, it's had many incarnations. I guess we're up to Sloan 5 now. They're hoping to launch that this year. The Sloan Digital Sky Survey has had a huge impact on astronomy. Various aspects of it have involved imaging, spectroscopy, both optical and infrared. And I have to say my highest citation papers are data releases of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. I remember once being asked at sort of an early career researcher symposium, um, what are the pros and cons of getting involved in a large survey? And I, I feel like my experience with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey can kind of help, gives me a, an interesting perspective on that. In terms of the pros of getting involved with a large survey, like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, uh, you can get involved with, for example, data release papers, which could have thousands of citations. So that, as you mentioned, the 16,000 citations or whatever. Um, you get to make connections you meet people, you develop collaborations with people in a, a large uh, organization like that and a large consortium like that. Uh, and it can really help boost your career. One of the real caveats, one of the things you have to watch out for though, is that if you get involved in a large collaboration, a large consortium, you need to be able to point to what you yourself are doing or have done. So if you're on these great big 
data release papers with thousands of citations, that's awesome. But when you're applying for a job and somebody asks you, well, what did you do? You need to be able to say, I did this, this, and this. Um, for example, you know, you may have written papers using the data and they may have like a hundred authors, but if you're the first author or the second author and you can say, I did this with the data, um, that's great. If you get involved in something that is more, let's say you did essential infrastructure for the survey, whether you wrote a data pipeline or something like that, then that can be harder to do unless you're, again, leading a paper and you can say, I led this paper. But it's always important when getting involved in one of these large collaborations that you be able to point to things you did, whether it's leading a specific science project that resulted in a paper or whether it's you wrote this pipeline, but you know you kind of need to be able to show what you yourself did. So yeah, with regard to Sloan, I would say a lot of my citations, but not all of them, are due to the Sloan data release papers. But we also did really exciting science with the Sloan data, for example, finding lots of um, new satellite galaxies of the Milky Way. So those also got citations, maybe not as many, but still quite a few citations. So I'm going to take a bit of a turn with this question. Don't worry, it's nothing too scandalous. This is from Corinne Brown. You've done some work as the chair of the Idea Steering Committee, which is a part of the Astronomical Society of Australia. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that work? The idea chapter is, well, it's inclusion, diversity, and equity in astronomy. Um, so the idea chapter of the uh, Astronomical Society of Australia uh, has as a goal basically to make life work better for everybody um, to, to essentially level the playing field or try to level the playing field for everybody in astronomy in Australia. The chapter started out as women in astronomy and then about four or five years ago, it was decided to expand it beyond women because it's not just women who face obstacles in academic careers or academic environments. Uh, it's basically expanding it to other areas, whether it has to do with people's origin or um, LGBTIQ status or any of those things. And, you know, that's been a major should I say, initiative in astronomy in Australia to, to make the academic environment and the research environment as inclusive and supportive as possible for everybody. It, it's actually been seen in some other disciplines in Australia as astronomy is maybe not necessarily leading the way, but certainly towards the, the front of the pack in terms of working toward a more inclusive and diverse environment. The reason I got involved in this is I, you know, I personally believe that this is, this is important, that you know, science is not just for cisgender heterosexual males of European descent, right? I mean, science is for everybody who's interested in and has a talent in science. And I think that there are a lot of obstacles, even obstacles that many people are not aware of, to including people who maybe don't fit a cookie cutter mold and trying to eliminate those obstacles. And so, yeah, I'm involved in IDEA, involved in various other um, equity and diversity committees. Again, just trying to make the work and academic environment more inclusive and more accepting of people from diverse backgrounds.
Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.